Christian nationalism on the move, coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back, Niebuhr Nation, to another episode of the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, the only podcast in the world dedicated to spreading the love and wisdom of Reinhold Niebuhr, both far and wide. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-host Aaron Duncan. Zach has the week off. This here you're listening to now is the first part of a special Halloween. Where's that wolf coming from? Where was I? Ah, yes. This here you're listening to now is the first part of a special Halloween double episode. The second episode will feature scholar and pastor Dr. John Weatherly, so stay tuned for that. But this episode, we are joined by a very special guest, a good friend of the pod, Dr. Jeremy Sabella. Um, We're going to greet Jeremy here in a second. But first, I'm going to tell you all what we're going to be doing uh, today for this spooky double episode imagine with me if you will this scenario it's a crisp october morning and you show up at your kids soccer practice as you arrive you see a crowd of parents gathering on the sidelines you hear some shouting and see some enthusiastic fist shaking as you get up a little closer you can see they're all holding books and reading aloud to one another You elbow your way through the crowd, and there's a man at the center wearing a trench coat and dark sunglasses, standing over a large brown box filled with books, and he's passing them out to each person there. As you move to get a look at the title of the book, another parent pulls you aside and says, let's go for a walk. You follow them to the other side of the goalpost, and this person says, look, I know you're into theology, but I've been reading this book and it has a lot of good ideas. Here, why don't you take one? And let's get coffee next week to discuss it. He hands one of these books to you and and, and it reads at the top, Christian Nationalism, a biblical guide for taking dominion and discipling nations. You agree to a meeting time, but you're not really sure how to address the issue with this person. What do you say? What do you say? Well, both of our guests today for this double episode are going to help us in this situation, answering this question. If you don't know the book, Christian Nationalism, it is a it is written by social media personalities. And I guess we call them right wing political theologians, the Andrews, Torba and Isker. And our first guest who will be responding to this book, um, as I said earlier, is our friend, Dr. Jeremy Sabella. Jeremy is lecturer at Dartmouth and is perhaps uh, most well-known by our audience as being a uh, co-creator of uh, that documentary on Reinhold Niebuhr, which is aired on PBS called An American Conscience, and author of its companion biography on Niebuhr of the same name. Jeremy, welcome back. Pleasure as always. So Jeremy, just talking practically, given the scenario I outlined a little bit ago, somebody wants to get together with you to discuss this book on Christian nationalism before we talk any content whatsoever, 
what are some tips you would give about just addressing this book and some of these concepts with a friend or an acquaintance who's sincerely trying to figure these things out? Okay, I think, well, going into the conversation, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that this style of book, um, it's not written um, to persuade its readers by rational argument or by the nuanced way it's reading scripture. That's not the point. The way that it persuades is by going for the gut, right? It's rhetoric that's meant to stir people's emotions and get them fired up and um, get them excited and short circuit their thinking. So, you know, I think one of the first tips I'd give for going into the conversation is um, recognize that the person you're talking to is really excited about this right? They're feeling excited. They're feeling amped up. Walk them back from that gently, right? Don't go in with your guns blazing, but get them to stop and start trying to think it through. Um, because one of the things, you'll, you know, once they start reading it more carefully, they're going to realize there are some glaring holes in the way this book is reading scripture. There are some leaps of argument that don't really make sense. There's very little actual history in this book. Um, so just asking them, just, you know, maybe start the conversation just by asking questions, be Socratic about it, right? Yeah. Tell, you know, say, you know, what gets you excited about this? Um, how are they reading scripture, right? You know, what sort of verses are they quoting? How are they using those quotes? What's their kind of American history? I like that tip of going Socratic. Yeah. When in yeah. doubt, go Socratic. <laughs> you know, put the burden on them to think through these things on their own and to help them kind of be their you know, midwife of ideas, just try to pull these ideas out of them. And the really um, stunning thing about this book, Aaron and I have talked about it, is that they pull in some familiar concepts. So th there's there's some areas where you're like, okay, actually they get that, but then what do they do with it, you know, yeah. uh, afterwards? So y somebody who's maybe not familiar with Christian nationalism or not familiar with the uh, the argument they might go into it finding a lot of things familiar you know yeah. a lot of foundations that they maybe even share why well, I, I think i would just add that what uh jeremy is hitting on is the gut-wrenching emotion uh, mm. thing is is it, it kind of reads as a as a call to arms but also as a foundational text for christian nationalism because the issue with some of their citations, even of like Marjorie Taylor Greene, is she wouldn't use the distinction as of Judeo-Christian as they do in the preceding chapters. She's a big proponent of that. So it's a really weird text of firing people up, but also trying to unify the divergence in among Christian nationalists in America. I couldn't help but notice that it seemed to oscillate between chapters. Like you could, I think you can tell the different which you know different authors wrote a different chapter mm. um, because there's a similar theme with some chapters and there's it's kind of a good cop bad cop thing going on throughout <laughs> like every other chapter someone hits you over the head with a diatribe about you know how we're victims and all this type of stuff and we need to assert ourselves whereas like the other chapters are more trying to kind of create a foundational reasoning Good. So let's let's talk about this. Um, I think this forward and everything kind of, kind of coming before chapter one. This kind of reads like a manifesto. It gets into kind of the differentiation between secularity and secularism. 
and makes an argument that the separation between church and state is not absolute. Now, I think for even a lot of our listeners, this might be something they, they might agree with that, okay, say that we do separate the institutions between church and state. There's still a lot of gray area there where absolutely religion comes into how we make moral decisions and therefore how we structure our government. So I guess how would we differentiate kind of a Niburian view from what we're reading in these pages about that separation between church and state? Well, so my issue with that intro and the way it is talking about separation of church and state, it's setting up a straw man. Separation of church and state is about the establishment of churches. It means that the state can't establish a church, right? Right. That's all it is. Um, and so saying, you know, America never, you know, we, we think about separation in church and state as absolute, but it's never really, but, you know, that's not the way it is. Let me tell you the secret that has been hidden from you for the last 200 years. That's common knowledge for people who have any background in this stuff, right? Um, that's why we have, you know, the statues of Ten Commandments in front of courthouses, right? Or, or you know, public manger displays in shopping malls, right? Like it, the, the evidence of the way that the, you know, religious uh, claims make their way into the public, public sphere. I mean, our money says in God we trust for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. It's all there. It's, it's, you know, always been there to some extent. So the very way that it's framing this from the start is, is problematic. Um, and it's also, you know, the, the distinction between secularity and secularism. Um, there is limited value to that distinction. But again, the secularism that they're setting up, America's never had the kind of like absolute approach to secularism that you'd see in a place like France, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, where they ban something like the burkini, right? Yeah. <laughs> or headscarves. Um, that's never been the approach that's been used in the United States. So again, it's setting up a straw man. And, you know, I, I do want to kind of give a Niburian read on what purpose these straw men are serving. But sure. it's it's framing it in a way that has no actual bearing in American history whatsoever. Yeah, I want to bring out this one thing. This is to- like it, it almost feels like I almost feel uncomfortable talking about it because it feels like we're talking about just rhetoric. It feels like most of kind of what they're articulating, they're trying to do after the fact, like Christian nationalism's already a thing. And we're trying to provide maybe a logical justification for it or something like that. Um, so it can, like, a, a lot of kind of what they're saying, they sometimes will say the quiet part out loud, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes we'll, they'll kind of soften up a little bit and won't go, like, full theocracy. Uh, and I don't think that they do a very good job of differentiating kind of theocracy and whatever it is that they're trying to do. They try to. Um, for instance, uh, they say, we are obliged... So they bring this in. We're going to get to this here in a second. They bring this in with the Great Commission. Um, but we are obliged to peacefully order our state governments in such a way as to help Christianity grow and flourish in our states. OK, like some people be like, you know, of course, I mean, religion should have the space to grow and, and flourish. You know, any religion should have that. Um, and they say they will say they do not believe in forced or coercive conversion to christianity okay yeah that's good it's kind of sad you have to say that uh but that's true but yet they say on page 11 this principle 
does not apply, though, to the observance of Christian morality. And then they make an argument that the that the Christian that the government should have Christian morals. So we're not going to force people to be Christians, but we will force them to have Christian morals. Yeah, it's a it's a very it's it's like a soft Christian reconstructionist move in that way. And and this is you know the the thing with this book in general. Um, you know, people who wrote on Christian reconstructionism, like Rushdan Rushduni. Or people who wrote on dominionism or, you know, who helped, you know, were, were intellectual architects for the Christian right. I, you know, I think of, of somebody like Francis Schaeffer, for instance, uh, were a lot more sophisticated in the way that they presented this. And so there you do sense that they haven't really engaged their own thinkers with very much depth. Right. They haven't engaged, um, you know, with the Christian Reconstructionists. They, they, they pick and choose certain ideas from them they pick and choose from dominionists um but it's it's a seed planted in shallow soil right the the roots don't go that deep so as a consequence there there are a lot of internal contradictions in the text um on the one hand they really seem to want people to seize political power now on the other hand they're gearing up for um laying foundations for a parallel set of institutions that will have influence for seven generations Right. Um, that seems to be at crosshairs, mm-hmm. right? Either you're going to seize political power now, or you're going to focus on building power for the long haul. Um, but to do both at once, you're, you're splitting your energies, mm-hmm. right? And, and so right there, you know, even if I, I'm trying to just get them to be coherent about their Christian nationalism, there's, there's a lot of tension in how they're going about their project. Hmm. Yeah, I was just about to say... Um, Part of the hard, part of the reason it was hard for me to follow the argument is at times it seemed they were giving like injunctions for how America should be right now, or what we're gonna do once we build that technology and the corp, the culture, ready to fill that as they call it the the space or the vacuum left after liberal democracy fails. So that's kind of how I was kind of hard reading the argument. I couldn't follow it that much, but it does seem a bit weird that. They just use the government as like an abstract thing where it's almost it's still filling the void of secularity mm-hmm. and it's still making judgments uh, on the culture. Do you guys find that a bit weird? Uh, I don't know if we've already covered that bit. But... I almost wonder if it's out of necessity that they yeah. kind of have these two different um, methods where when one can seem outright fascist you know, and yeah. how they're saying the government should operate, they can always return to, oh, that's just what we want. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to impose that on you guys and then kind of recede into this parallelism yeah. again. And th- it seems like they want to keep it soft so that it can apply to as many Christian nationalists yeah. as they possibly can, probably. The allies. <laughs> right, exactly. It just seems to me that the reason they're having such a hard time of getting out of this like hole they're digging themselves is at heart they remain deeply liberal they have very very big commitments to like freedom of speech like negative mm-hmm. freedoms mm-hmm. um as like the foundation they, they say you cannot live an authentically authentic christian lifestyle if you do not have freedom of speech mm-hmm. so you have to have certain conditions for that um in in some ways they they still remain like humanists even though they're critiquing secular liberal democracy and secular Humanism. They still uphold like John Locke and yeah, you know, of course, a lot of the, the founding 
principles of democ- American democracy. So that's kind of where I see the the kind of the you know, uh, hole in the ground for them. But Jeremy, how would you? So back to this kind of morality question, I want to put it to us a little bit, because even though like I disagree with the way that they put this, that, of course, we're not going to coerce people into becoming Christians, but we're still going to have a government, dang it, that applies Christian morality. And you can see how dangerous this would get, because a little bit later on, they're going to start talking about like sexual perversions and uh, and all kinds all kinds of stuff that it seems like they're setting kind of a foundation for maybe locking up homosexuals or something like that. Mm-hmm. But how do we, it's, it's, it's easy, I think, to poke holes at them, but how do we negotiate this? Because obviously we want uh, our government to have certain notions of justice and, and maybe morality, maybe to do, to do the right thing. I mean, Niebuhr was all about, he wasn't shy at all about, applying biblical lessons to what the government should or shouldn't do. So I guess, how do we articulate that? Well, I think, um, you know, somebody like Niebuhr was very much committed to the pluralist project. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, As a realist, as a theological realist, he was committed to the idea that there are, you know, certain basic moral precepts that are true across time and across space and that we should adopt those, right? Thou shalt not murder is is a pretty good precept to adopt all the way through uh thou shalt not steal things like that um but with somebody like Niebuhr and I think for other committed pluralists um you know people who are part of secularity right let's say there's a sense in which you're you're listen you're you're just trying to set ground rules according to which people with all sorts of different belief systems can operate mm-hmm. right that's a different sort of project than saying, okay, the ground rules are going to be explicitly Christian and not just Christian. They're going to be explicitly our version of Christianity. I want to be explicit about that because I actually think this is a a heretical version. I don't think it's Christianity. I think it's masquerading as such, but you know, there's a difference between setting ground rules that people of all different thought systems can abide by versus saying there's one thought system, you know, one thought system to rule them all. And (laughs) right. And we, we need to, to uh, do what we can to implement that. Um, that's a very different sensibility. And I don't think it's compatible with secularity as they're framing it. So, so what I'm hearing is there, there needs to be some commitment. And I've heard good arguments about it, why Christianity is best when it operates within pluralism. We need to respect pluralism. Um, and that needs to be kind of foundational along with anything that we do uh, with Christianity uh, in, in the public space. So then everything, I guess, that we would kind of impose on the government should be something that's universalizable rather than something that is particular to the Christian faith. Uh, yes, I think I think that is the Niebuhrian solution. That's like the broader liberal solution. And within those ground rules, there's all sorts of room for religious figures and movements to take hold and shape society right there's all sorts of room for something like the civil rights movement within that and for martin luther king to you know give a speech on the national mall about the american dream like there's 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 room for all of that um but in order to create that space you have to be more you know you you basically have to observe the limits of what you can do a little bit more scrupulously right Mm -hmm. to what extent can we because what 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 I take Torba and Isker to really want, they want an established church without calling it that. Yeah. They want the full muscle 
of an establishment church just without the label. Um, and that is the bane of the American experiment as we know it. Yeah, good. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this section. What is Christian nationalism? Uh, and I, I think a lot of their legwork happens just before we even get to chapter one. I think once we get to chapter one, it flies. But if we're looking at this kind of as a manifesto, everything that happens before chapter one, I think this is an important section where they kind of try to define what is Christian nationalism. And they establish that Christian nationalism is loving your neighbor. So they place lo loving your neighbor as yourself, basically as the center maxim. Uh, and then it asks the question, who is our neighbors, our fellow citizens, mm -hmm. um, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ? Loving them means protecting them. And this is the interesting part. Loving our neighbors means protecting them from foreign interests, alien worldviews, and hostile invaders. What I wonder what alien worldviews looks like to them. Like what, what is the Christian nationalist feel commissioned to protect the general public from when it comes to an alien worldview? Uh, well, definitely any of the big isms, right? That they love to set up as bogeymen. Um, so socialism, communism, secularism, right? They're, they're, they're explicit that these isms are demonic. Mm -hmm. And what I found really telling about the wording, like, you know, the loving your neighbor means protecting them from the, you know, alien worldviews and foreignness and all of this it, it flies in the face of the parable of the good samaritan mm -hmm. it flies in the face of the injunction to look after the poor the widow the orphan the stranger right yeah <laughs> um so it is this this really funny sleight of hand you know christian nationalism means loving your neighbor i mean of course christianity has to put loving your neighbor central but their question you know to the to the lawyer in the bible who is my neighbor mm -hmm. is extremely Extreme, their answer to that's extremely narrow, certainly much more narrow than Jesus himself made it. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're already running into this, this big problem where they, they put a central tenet of Christianity next to a reading of that tenet that's just flagrantly unchristian. I think that the big scary move that they make is when they say we won't coerce Christianity, but we will coerce Christian mor morality. So basically everything they say from then on, including this, becomes the obligation of the government. Uh, so the obligation of the government in enforcing a Christian yeah. morality that would include protecting people and protecting is, I mean, what does that mean? Protecting yeah. people of alien worldviews. That looks very McCarthyistic. I mean, the logic of it leads to coercion, as you're kind of hinting at. I mean, it's a bit weird. At some points, they are praising the humor of Adam Sandler mm -hmm. and then saying we need our own form of entertainment. Well, I, I would probably think that the career humor Adam Sandler participates in would not be acceptable in their forms of entertainment. It know? was almost like that came in a context where, like, we love Jews, too. Yeah. You know? And uh, <laughs> look, I have we love friends. Adam Sandler. Yeah. That's cool. But we need our own humor, too. Yeah, it's a bit weird. So, I mean, it's, can you imagine someone like that actually being a good or a, a big participant in that kind of society? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think so. There's, I want to hear you guys' thoughts on this. So, I've heard this abused quite a bit on uh, the interwebs, people throwing this verse out, First um, Timothy 5.8, and they invoke it here. And it says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and specifically for those of his own house, 
he hath denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. How should we read this and how, I don't know, like, I'll tell you, I see it abused as being a way that we can, I guess, otherize people. Well, it's certainly not about nation states. Right. <laughs> like, this is very clearly about personal morality. It's like, listen, don't be a deadbeat parent. Right? Yeah. Like, don't go, like, spending your money outside the home and leave your own destitute. That's what it's referring to, from what I can tell. This is not... um you know, a verse that late, you know, can be co-opted to help build the blueprint for a society. It's, 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 there's just zero attention to the context that, that Timothy was talking to, right? The, where the book of Timothy is, is, is talking to a beleaguered community within an empire. Yeah. Right. That's under the heel of that empire. They right? make this, so it's, yeah. it's a very different context. They make this mistake a lot of kind of, injecting our modern understanding of a nation into the text. Um, they do this also with the Great Commission. They actually use the term baptizing nations, you know, to mean that we turn nations into Christian, you know, yeah. uh, from the Great Commission. They also do something like, um, we love God our Father, therefore we love our forefathers and yeah, our right. fatherland. So... <laughs> Some of this you just can't take seriously, but I know that we want to take it seriously uh, because it's so influential. And I think that, you know, something should be mentioned about this, that in the past, I know totalitarian regimes will start off and people will just kind of treat it as kind of this goofy view of the world. Uh, and they kind of give it a pass as just being goofy and they don't take it seriously. So, that, I mean, that's the that's the tricky thing about this is um, you have to take it seriously because people take it yeah. seriously, but you don't want to like shame it and i don't know it's it's a it's it's tough to critique these people because it's so outlandish it's kind of like we you make people were making the mistake with trump of not taking him seriously when he was in the primaries of 2016 and people were just kind of laughing him off and not taking him seriously and pretty soon uh, before you know he's president well maybe one way of taking it seriously is to treat it uh, um as a postmodern text Right. All right. So, for instance, if you go to a Trump rally and you try to stitch together a rational argument from what Trump says, you're not going to get one. Yeah. Right. Because that's not the point of his rhetoric. He's not trying to make a coherent argument. What he's trying to do is to reinforce a set of associations through repetition. Mm. And it ends up being very effective. Right. People who've gone to Trump rallies say it, it feels a lot like a Pentecostal church service where somebody from the front just yells the name of Jesus over and over again, and it riles the audience up and they feel something very powerful as a result. Wow. Only he's not yelling the name of Jesus, obviously, right? He's, he's yelling catchphrase like, you know, witch hunt, lock her up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's creating this chain of associations. So this is not about logic, right? It's about feeling. And this text is trying to speak to a Trumpian moment, right? How do you tease out a Christian nationalism from the welter that is Trumpism? Uh, you do it by creating, you know, putting together a list of associations, right? And this might be why you and I are, are struggling to, you know, this isn't coherent. And it seems that they're arguing multiple things at once. I would argue that's by design. Yeah. And I would argue that it's actually a, a postmodern technique of short circuiting the mind, Right. And going straight for the emotion and trying to get people to act on the basis of emotion. 
all the while they're claiming that they're against post. This is the irony of it, right? They're claiming that yeah. they're against postmodernism. It's one of the isms that they'd be against. But this is, from what I can tell, it's a study in that form of rhetoric and logic and persuasion. And so this, this, you know, that that's one of the contradictions at the heart of this. It's actually, I think, far more postmodern than it is modern. And that's part of why you and I are struggling to wrap our minds. Yeah, you know, that. this makes me rethink like this entire show, even though we're, you know, pretty far into it now, because I just have like this list of things that I disagree with that are yeah. illogical. And it feels like we're beating the wind. Like we have this serious scholar on here, Dr. Jeremy Sabella. And we're trying to, like, I'm just trying to make these logical, aha, you know, gotcha moments with this text. And it doesn't matter to them, <laughs> you know, like, it, it's not trying to be coherent. It's trying to rile you up. And that's why it has maybe this good cop, bad cop feel to it. Because once it oscillates to the bad cop, then it's like this diatribe that's waking people up and it's like getting them motivated and you, they feel that. And then it comes back to kind of this cool, you know, rational dude that's trying to make sense of it all uh, just to make sure that they check that box. Oh, it's rational, too. And then we go back into the, the, the feel of it, I guess. I'm thinking of one particular example. They start off. Well, I don't know who wrote that this chapter, but they started off by saying that Christian nationalists are not racists. And if we if people say they are, they don't understand his, the historical emergence of Christianity or you know Christian nations as such. But then they don't even go into defending how mm -hmm. they aren't Christian nationalists, uh, how Christian nationalists aren't racists, mm -hmm. or how the founding fathers were not racist themselves. Or, it's just to know, be able to check the box. We've addressed yeah. it. Yeah. Maybe we haven't you know yeah. answered the question though but we're mindful of that they set the whole argument for it in the in the introduction paragraph and don't even represent ever again so yeah that makes sense well if it's kind of beating the wind to like um attack these guys rationally i wonder if we could at least look inward and see what we are doing uh and this next point that they make about jewish uh, zionism i think that maybe is something that we should wrestle with because they they turn into a whataboutism and say that they quote Biden as calling himself a nationalist or a, a Zionist. Um, and their their argument basically amounts to this. If the Jewish people can say it about Israel, why can't we say it about Christianity? Why can't we claim a Christian nation? Yeah. Well, I, you know, so the this the chapter on on Judaism, it was it was interesting on the variety of levels. Um, I will say, so there is this tension and just evangelical american evangelical christian attitudes toward judaism and israel that's just it goes unspoken most of the time but on the one hand um evangelicals are big champions of the state of israel on the other hand you really push down on what they think about what you need to do to get saved mm -hmm. most of them think that jews are going to hell because they don't believe in jesus mm -hmm. yeah right so you, they're holding intention they're they're you know on the one hand they seem to be very pro israel on the other hand um, it really kind of feels like you have, you know, cynical politicians in Israel saying like, listen, we know that you want us to go to hell, but we will use your support and we will take your money. So it feels like these two power blocks using each other for their respective political ends in a way. Um, and in this particular chapter, at least, you know, I'll say this for, for Torben Iskar, at least they lay that tension bare. And they are pretty honest about what they think about judaism 
Um, and it's actually what I think a lot of um, American evangelicalism thinks about Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, in that breath, I should also be clear that this is at points flagrantly anti-Semitic. Yeah. And they try to head that off by saying like, oh, we know you're going to call us anti-Semites. Like you're, you know, you're Aperitchniks and all of you are just going to come after us and, and trash us. They have like the inflammatory quote from the guy from the Anti-Defamation League in the opening list of quotes, right? Yeah. So they, they are setting it up uh, to, to try to insulate themselves from that critique. But um, listen, when, when you're talking about a cabal of global elites that's leading the world to hell, this is boilerplate anti-Semitic rhetoric, yeah. right? This is protocols of the elders of Zion. This is what, you know, helped fuel the rise of the Nazis. You're playing with unholy fire yeah. when you start using that imagery. And it is spun throughout the intro and the chapter on Judaism here. So this chapter on Judaism is about, uh, it's basically about why Judaism today is an enemy of Christianity, mm-hmm. but yeah. why we're also not anti-Semitic while we're, saying that mm. um so it's basically them saying we don't hate them we don't hate jewish people but they hate us so we hate them <laughs> you know a little bit and but this gets back to it. your question about um you know what what we should think about zionism and they say you know if if jews can have zionism why can't we do the same thing for christianity um and the way i see it is it really comes down to who has power in a given situation right when People who've been, you know, under the boot of empire and who have been oppressed become nationalists. That's one thing. When the overdogs become nationalists, that's extremely, that's a whole different thing. And it's much more dangerous. So state of Israel, 1948, on the other end of the Holocaust, you know, forming in, in, in Jews being nationalistic, that's a matter of bare survival. It's a necessity. Right. Uh, Talmudic passages, because they talk about this, that are really anti non-Jews again it's from a context where Jews are oppressed yeah right Mm -hmm. so you know writing the stinging critique of outside groups when you're the one who's being persecuted is one thing saying those same stinging things when you hold the power is another right um and it is it's I think permissible and even helpful for people who are just trying to survive um, and it becomes downright dangerous when it's enacted by people who hold all the power. That's why saying black power is a good yeah. thing. You know? Yes. Saying yeah. white power, maybe you shouldn't say that. You know? It's a whole different valence whole different when thing. you determine rule of law, right? When you don't have access to the rule of law, asserting your power is a matter of survival. When you are the law, it's it's a tool for persecution. They also do that by downplaying the reality of anti-Semitism with their like litmus test on page 63, that the real anti-Semitism is not to tell oh them gosh. the gospel, right? It's like, oh, okay. I have the quote right here. So yeah, they redefine what anti-Semitism is. True, quote, true anti-Semitism is overlooking Jews or failing to evangelize them because you because you believe they are chosen by God and therefore get a free pass for rejecting Jesus. That's anti-Semitism, according to them. Wow. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is as well, I think they, they have Paul all wrong, especially in Romans 2, where he's contrasting Jewish leaders who uphold the law, but break the law almost daily 
by lusting and stealing and cheating and these things. But then he contrasts that with a Gentile who lives according to the dictates of his own heart or conscience. And Paul says that, you know, this person is a Jew by their disposition. So mm. they're playing around with a really weird distinction between ethnicity as opposed to like a, a spiritual disposition towards something. Mm -hmm. So they they really make up muck up the question of what is to be a what does it really mean to be a Jew? Well, according to Paul, it's just to live according to that or love God mm -hmm. and that, right? I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Jeremy? Is is that a fair assessment? Yeah, no, I, I think they're they're um they're, their use of scripture in general was just atrocious. Mm -hmm. Um but so you know Paul's argument on on judaism is actually really pretty nuanced mm -hmm. and paul also makes clear that christians the new community right they're the grafted branch yeah right, right. they're the ones that didn't belong and now by the grace of god have been grafted in mm -hmm. um you get none of that sense of humility from these guys there's no sense of like listen right there but the by the grace of god go we because we were not a part of this promise. And then by the grace of God, mm -hmm. we become a part of it, right? So there's this, you know, Paul is exhorting his audience to start from that place of humility when assessing the Jewish question. And, and it's still trying to make a critique, right? But a critique that still honors where he came from. Like Paul's really trying to straddle that line. And I think any reading of this passage, it doesn't capture the fact that, but like, listen, like Paul is still, you know, trying to hold on to to his 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 jewish roots and and to persuade the jewish community to come back that's completely lost here i think we can acknowledge that so much of what they're trying to do is clean up around the edges of what is anti-semitism to make it i guess more presentable to people i but guess i think the way they can the way they do that and the way they try to is put themselves like on the defense what jeremy said earlier that it's it's easier for a community was well, it's, it's it's different when communities who are like being oppressed mm -hmm. to say like black power or stuff like that. But in the mentality they are um, en engaged in is that we are being oppressed. Mm -hmm. Our culture is being defamed. We have drag queens going to schools like, you know. Oh, well, God. let's talk about that. This is in the very first chapter uh, where it's ironically titled uh, Dominion. It's the chapter is really all about uh, the Christians victimization and culture and how we're just kind of, you know, beat down over and over by secularism. Yeah. And uh, and it's and I there's a Niburian critique just waiting here uh, for this. Yeah, for innocence and for uh, that justification that the will to, to the will to live transmutes into the will to power type of thing but it's interesting they start by kind of christianizing dominion the will to power um and then energizing it with a sense of victimization that's exactly right and you know if i may just say one final word on this this question of anti-semitism listen historically speaking christianity's relationship to judaism is is a really fraught one and it's a fraught question for christians still Right. How how do Christians distinguish themselves from Jews while still, you know, respecting Jews as such? And um, this was a really important question for Niebuhr. You know, as a German American, you know, I think he felt the particular obligation to try to get that one right. 
and to try to like, you know, not, not to, to be honest about what he's bringing to the table as a Christian while being really respectful of, of Judaism. And most famously, you know, Will Herberg, the, the Jewish sociologist thought about converting to Christianity. Um, Niebuhr pushed him not to and said to him, please, like, like we, you know, it's, it, it actually doesn't help either of us, right? Mm-hmm. If you do convert and it, it, so you see that Niebuhr's coming out of a very different framework where he's saying, no, for, to, to, for, for, for um, Christians to develop an adequate appreciation for the Hebrew scriptures, they need to talk to Jews, hmm. right? That's, that's where they need to go to develop an appreciation for their Old Testament and its, its, its social gospel, right? But yeah, I mean, this, and this is, again, just this thread that runs through this book that I think is very different. And again, this is a, um, it's, it's a very problem. It's all extremely problematic when the powerful groups develop persecution complexes, mm. right? This is arguably what happened with, with Hitler's Germany, mm-hmm. right? Same thing. And in that case, they have the memory of World War One and the Treaty yeah. of Versailles, right? But as they're ramping up power, they're basically saying we need to start taking over parts of Europe to protect ourselves from the enemy, right? Even as they've gained all this power, they're still, you know, there's this persecution mentality and they're, they're, they're drumming up this persecution complex to justify their power grabs. Mm-hmm. And that's the pattern I see repeated here, mm-hmm. right? Because again, it, they're speaking to this evangelical sense of grievance um, and they're compa- they're drawing no distinctions between persecution in the early church and you know persecution today. Uh, in their minds, it is it does seem to be equivalent to be like, okay, you might get thrown to the lions if you don't go along with the imperial cult to Caesar. Mm-hmm. And their mind is the same as so. There's a drag show in your town <laughs> that nobody's forcing you to go to, but the sheer fact that it exists is a form of persecution. I mean, you, you say it like that, it starts to sound ludicrous, but that is actually what they're claiming. Yeah. You know, just the fact that these alternative ways of being are in their environment at all is persecution and it's grounds for colonizing. It's grounds for conquering. It's grounds for subduing. Yeah. And it's and just as ludicrous yeah. as saying we need to take over Ukraine because we're getting persecuted by the Ukrainians. I was just going to bring that up. I, I wonder yeah. if there's a thread here between this type of thinking and Putinism. Uh, absolutely I, yeah. they're all forms of nationalism that have put christianity at the center that's interesting can i just ask a question to you guys because I, I found this really weird um like most things in the book but they use language they use the language of like conquering um weapons uh taking over and in the chapter on spiritual weapons we can use all they give us is prayer and fasting and these sorts of things um and so basically what they're what they're trying to get at is the long game we just got to pray and fast and then whatever happens at the end of the secular liberalism we'll just fill that void with our own technology our own economy our own culture how is that different from their critique of the sort of escapist yeah philosophy of the puritans that they were beating against and then they go on to say that the Puritans were the ones who were defending freedom. Like what? Well, what that's why where I think they want the audience to fill in the real yeah. application because they they have a similar critique as Niebuhr for pietism in here. 
yeah saying that it's kind of weakened us in the public square and so they have in that chapter i think that's the one on like the spiritual weaponry and stuff like that so there's all this warlike language and we got to do something we got to prepare ourselves for something big and then it's kind of this really vague yeah we got to pray and you know and fast at the end of it and it's kind of like ramping them up to a conclusion you know they're not going to re- you know receive well just that conclusion so it's yeah. almost like they're creating a void for you know fill in the blank we need to do this and this and this well, not just pray it's just kind of like with all these sorts of evangelical uh, preachers faith healers and stuff the language is so abstract and the the way they use spirituality is is so devoid of any concrete reality that i think people get sucked up into it because it becomes some sort of you know tantalizing like, thing to it reminds on. me of trump leading up to jan 6 yeah like trump is ramping and ramping and ramping them up and he's feeding the beast and feeding the beast and he'll do everything but say attack. And he lets them figure that out and put that together. You know, this, this, t- especially, uh, I don't know which one it is, but whoever has the really fiery diatribes uh, for chapters in here, mm-hmm. this guy is really trying to ramp up something here, you know, and it's, and it's kind of a way of not being complicit it, when something happens, you yeah. know? Yeah. What do you think? I, I want to hear Jeremy on this because I, I just it's so weird how the, the spiritual language people use in evangelical churches and like faith healers and stuff like there's so many prophets of God. And I use that in air quotes who are prophesying like over President Trump. Mm-hmm. One asked them to open the eye of his conscience to enable him to um, enact the prop the prophecies like what the hell does that mean like what are you what are you getting on so what do you think jeremy what what i mean why why are we using all this spiritual language and how do we talk to people who are sucked into that well no aaron you bring up a good point because it is um they want us to use an image from don quixote they want us to tilt that windmills (laughs) right they want us to spend all of our time nitpicking things that don't really matter to them yeah. Right. Or matter to their cause. And so I think we need to, you know, step back and be very clear about the lines um, that we're drawing. And, you know, a couple of places where I think we can do this theologically. Um, you know, as I read this, I, I couldn't help but reflect back on Martin Luther talking about the theology of the cross and contrasting with the theology of glory. Uh, this is a straight theology of glory. Right. These are people that equate being a good Christian with amassing political power, mm-hmm. with building your clout, with building your brand. And Luther's very clear, if that's your understanding of Christianity, um, you're missing the cross, right? You're missing uh, the man of sorrows. You're, you're missing the whole reason that, that Jesus had to die for us in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's striking to me, you know, repentance from what I can tell for, for Torbine Isker, it's a pre-Christian category. Once you've accepted Jesus, you don't need to repent. You know, you're in the footstool making business Christian. That's a yeah. direct quote. Yeah. Right. You know, you, you just fulfill the dominion mandate. That's it. There, there's, there's zero sense here that repentance is something that Christians need to come back to over and over and over again. Um, and for that simple reason, I, it's, it fails the gospel. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, you know, I, I can go in in a little more detail where I think this just it just like delves into straight heresy. But I think those are the sorts of places where we it needs to be countered is just saying the whole presuppositions of this of this project are wrong. The whole construct of the worldview presented here is unchristian and it's masquerading as Christianity. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Um, and those are the grounds on which I think we can attack in a way that actually can can push back. Right. And get people For to sure. rethink. Well, let's continue with this because this this whole kind of uh, framework that they're setting up is faulty. But I, I wanted to read one of the more striking things that they wrote in here. This is on page 30, starting on at the bottom of 34. But he says, we must be the ones who are willing to put in the work to build a Christian future, not only for our children and our children's children, but for Christendom as a whole. Now is the time for us to build. This is a spiritual war. They are targeting our very humanity. This is evidenced by everything that our enemies promote. Now, remember this term enemy. Their values, their enemies' values are inherently anti-human, abortion, moral decay, sexual degeneracy. Basically, Democrats is who they're talking about here. The destruction of sovereign nations and ethnic cleansing of people. Okay, we'll throw in an obvious one. The persecution of everything and anything related to God Almighty, our creator. I read a bunch of language like this, and this is through this whole chapter. Um, and I'm and I have to ask sometimes, am I the enemy? Am I the enemy to these people? You know, what do they do with a with a Christian who's uh, who sympathizes with some democratic causes or or what have you? Is there any gray area for these people? Uh, they want a world with zero gray. Right. They're they're working really hard to build up to it. And, you know, their their rhetoric, oh, they, you know, if, if they ever listen to this, they're going to love me saying this. Their rhetoric reminds me of Karl Marx. Uh. It's very, you know, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. It's Christian nationalists of the world unite. Yeah. You know, you have nothing to lose but your sense of cultural inferiority. It's it. So it's it's just ramping people up going straight for their emotions, short-circuiting their thinking. Um, at least in the case of Marx, you know, when you're talking about the proletariat of the, you know, mid to late 19th century, you're talking about a class of people that had next to nothing for real. Yeah. They were oppressed. Yeah. They were destitute. The people that Torba and Iskar are talking to are not destitute. They're not oppressed. They have to encounter ideas and, 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 and concepts and people that make them mildly uncomfortable, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's not a cross to bear. That's called living in a society. And, um, but in, yeah, no, you and I, I think are very unambiguously on the side of evil here. Yeah. And it's because, you know, when I, you know, I keep alluding kind of obliquely to this being heretical, I, um, I see them as coming back to a very old form of heresy called Manichaeanism, mm -hmm. right? Now, historically speaking, Manichaeanism is its own religion. It's not really Christianity, but, but it does, you know, leak into Christianity. Um, and the Manichaean contention is that we can, in fact, divide the world in the spheres of inherently good and inherently evil, mm -hmm. right? And that we do have the tools at hand with which to do that, with which to say, here's the side of the angels, here's the side of the demons and we can carve the entire world very clearly between those two camps. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get too much into the nitty gritty 
theology behind why this doesn't work, but the basic reason is that, you know what, if God created the world and God is good, then everything in it was originally good. Whatever sin is and evil is, it's a malfunction in a good system. When you and I commit sin, right, it's because we are distorting the good that God gave us. Right. And that that's original sin. It's it's this, you know, whatever it is in the human will that causes us to distort good things. That's original sin. Um, sin is not a thing. Right. It's a malfunction. And what that also means is that there's always the possibility for redemption. You know, you and I have these tendencies to distort good things. That's why we need grace. We don't just need it once. We don't just need it at the point of repentance, at the point of accepting Jesus. We need it over and over and over again, particularly when we exercise power. Yeah. Because that's when it becomes more and more tempting to distort good things to our benefit. And by the way, we can distort anything to our benefit. We can distort God's word to our benefit. We can distort people's good intentions to our benefit. Right? We can distort the name of Jesus to our benefit. There's zero fear here in this text of presenting the world with a false Christ. And that terrifies me. Right. Yeah. Right. Because that is, you know, as a Christian, that is, you know, the thing that I, you know, I feel the church is guilty of is presenting a false Christ over and over and over again. And the fact that there's no sense of fear and trembling in this text, um, that in itself should, should disqualify it from even being considered Christian, but it, it is, I, I do think they're trying to construct a Manichaean worldview where they, they can tell you exactly where the wheat is and where the tares are. The Bible expressly, Jesus expressly forbids us from making that distinction. That's the only that. distinction for God to make. And we need to hold up, we have to recognize that the person on the other side of the aisle is capable of redemption. Yeah. And create space in society for that redemption to work itself out. And here's a perfect example, what they named chapter two, and I know we're running low on time here, but what they named chapter two is, if you are a Christian, you're a Christian nationalist, which implies if you're not a Christian nationalist, you're not a Christian. Yeah. So they go on to make this big argument then in this chapter that, see, this is the appropriate reading of the text is that the Great Commission is we are to baptize nations mm -hmm. uh, into Christianity. So our uh, everybody's goal, I mean, using this you know modern definition of nation, what Jesus is not using uh using this definition you have like if you are if you claim christianity to be true you therefore must believe in the great commission you therefore must believe in christian nationalism and there's no gray area outside of that or anything like that so it's this so the world is divided into good and evil and the good is extremely narrow you know yeah and it happens to be their definition of it Yep. Yeah. They are very confident on the in the fact that they're on the side of the angels and that people who don't align with align with them are under the, the sway of demons. Yeah. yeah. That way of constructing the world is fundamentally unchristian. Jesus does not permit us to construct the world that way. And to give that the label of Christian is is a betrayal of of Christian faith. I got one one last question before we wrap up. Just I think this was an interesting switch that I wasn't anticipating going into this, where they're actually critical of kind of the pre-millennial pessimism. And they're trying to kind of turn Christianity more into this positivistic 
uh, type of view. Like they keep on saying things like, and if we can win and we will win, you know, like having this very uh, optimistic view of Christianity. I, is this kind of uh, just the same thing in reverse as, because obviously if you ask a, 10 um, people who might align with Christian nationalism, probably nine of them would say that they're pre-millennial or something like that. Uh, so I think it's an interesting thing that they're trying to get caught, you know, caught on is a very optimistic view. Uh, what's the play here? And what's, what's, I guess, the Niebuhrian critique of this? Well, I think, first of all, it's the post-millennial move that's very Christian reconstructionist. Right. The idea that the, you know, millennium where like everything's under, you know, everything's peaceful and under the rule of God's law uh, precedes the coming of Jesus. Right. That they are kind of making that Christian reconstructionist move here. And you're right. It is. It's very much a narrative of progress. We, we all know how Niebuhr, Niebuhr felt about narratives of progress. Yeah. Right. There, there's there's no sense here of how, you know, for Niebuhr as somebody who took, you know, he who took original sin seriously. And I know previous iterations of the pot have questioned that. And I don't think that's right. I think this is always a heart at the heart of how Niebuhr thought, um, you know, it's, it, you know, Niebuhr take to taking that concept seriously, it undoes his sense of us being able to draw clean narratives of progress is progress possible within history. Of course. Right. But within that progress come all these complications from the fact that you and I continue to distort good things. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And again, it's if, if you really think that you're going to usher in the millennium before Jesus comes, you have an overwhelmingly optimistic assessment of human nature and what humans are capable of doing mm -hmm. if they just have the right blueprint. Yeah. And so that's where, again, actually, this is where it's very liberal, right? Yeah, their, yeah. their anthropology, their view of human nature is extremely liberal because they think all you need is the right blueprint and you can execute it and build a perfect society. I'll tell you what's I'll tell you what's frightening just about this construction is okay so we got a Manichaean type worldview of we got the good guys and the bad guys and, and you add in an optimism where what happens to the bad people <laughs> you know like there's that whole question of the like in their mind the this evil over here has to be dealt with uh, to achieve these divinely sanctioned ends. Uh, what all do we have in the grab bag of possibilities yeah. to apply to these evil people once we get close? And, you know, I, there's one section in the book that I, I didn't know how to read, whether it is a th almost a threat or if it's just an anticipation on their part. But they say something to the effect of, in no doubt, we will have the support of many non-Christians to cultivate a Christian society and culture. And it's like, uh, is that going to be once you form a government and start implementing your morality stuff? Mm -hmm. Of course, people are going to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. I don't want to get murked. You know, <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. It's just, it's well, just, they name drop Ben Shapiro. Yeah. Which is kind of funny, <laughs> like hoping that he comes to know Christ. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. It's, it's scary stuff. Um, any last words for anybody? Well, uh, if, if I can nitpick for a second because i think it's illustrative of a bigger problem yeah um so on page 29 right there's this section where they're you know quoting various 
you know, if, first of all, that section's titled, Are You Tired of Being a Footstool? Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> um, but in that passage, they cite Galatians 3.28. And so here I'm reading directly. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, for we are all in Jesus Christ. Right? Anyone who is welcome to join us at they repent and accept Jesus Christ, etc. Here's the thing. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Oh, all are one in Christ. Interesting. So they're just taking, cherry picking one little part of the verse to help their <laughs> argument, eliminating the part that would complicate it, right? Because they they want this very clean, you know, men are men, women are women, this and this and that and that. And they don't want to confront the fact that for Paul, um, the gospel, it reconfigures and transfigures gender relations yeah it reconfigures and transfigures everything nothing's untouched by it mm-hmm. and they very deliberately because there's no way as well to deliver it they leave out the part that would present a really clear problem for their argument and that holds for their entire read of scripture it's extremely selective and i really hope that anyone who reads this actually cares to look up the passages they cite because when they do they're going to find oh these are being misread and misused all over the place in service of this manichaean worldview i found one section um where they quote this particular passage scripture where was actually from a pastor we said well wherever there is christ there is liberty and they're like reinterpreting liberty to very broadly mean like this liberal selection of rights that you should have in a nation state. Right, right. So if we just have Jesus as the representative of our state, then we're going to have all the perfect rights and liberties we have, which is completely not anything the New Testament it's speaks like the, of. It's like, I'm sorry, I know we should take it seriously, but it's like they've never read history. Like they've never learned how to read history and they don't, they can't spot an anachronism when they see it. You know, it's really frustrating. And I tell you, one of the more visceral uh affecting things that i came across is kind of the male female relationship mm-hmm. uh, that jeremy was just addressing stuff like this is kind of traced throughout they say uh, we need christian men who embrace their god-given masculine energy mm-hmm. to conquer and lead currently we have weak and pathetic emasculated christian men who embrace submissive fem- feminine energy that ends now <laughs> just stuff like that like it made it this just this was just a really uncomfortable thing to read well no it is and again it's it's stunning it's you know it's if you think of like the canonic hymn in philippians 2 where the whole point is jesus emptying of himself and submitting Mm -hmm. right even unto death on a cross um you know, the, I forget exactly which church father it was that said, you know, and working within, you know, Greco-Roman gender binary says in relation to God, we are all female. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's this recognition, even within like the patriarchal Greco-Roman construct of Christianity is upsetting. It's reconfiguring the way that we think about I gender and power. Um, and there's just right. again, they 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 but but again, you know, I. I would argue that the historical anachronism is actually a strategy on their part. Yeah. They don't care about being, it's, it's postmodern. They don't care about being historically accurate. Right. They only care about building a movement and they will mangle 
Christianity to help them do it. And that's, that's precisely what they're doing. That's one of the most insightful things you brought to the show today, because that really does change like how I'm going to be bringing this up to Dr. Weatherly, uh, because it really is like we can't keep capitulating the same thing where we're trying to speak facts to people who don't care about facts. You know, um, we have to come up with new, fresh ways of facing this stuff. And uh, and you're you're a part of that. We want to thank you, Jeremy, for coming on with us. As always, it's a great pleasure. Um, this is a great discussion. Um, and that about does it for our audience uh, for part one of our special Halloween double episode. We want to thank again our, our guest, uh, Dr. Jeremy Savella, for giving us uh, time once again to chat. We so much appreciate it. For you, our beloved audience, make sure you check out part two, where we'll be discussing the second half of this book with Dr. John Weatherly. Catch you on the other side. Peace.